Hello, this is Ruth Haley Barton, and you're listening to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. I'm so glad to be with you today and wanted to take a few minutes to give you an update on where we are with the podcast. As an organization, the Transforming Center is taking a hiatus from the podcast this summer to pour some real time and effort and attention into some new projects and also the ongoing work of the Transforming Center. And so we want to cover you, though, while we're gone, and we don't want you to feel like you're missing a connection with us. And so to do that, we're going to re-air some older favorite episodes from the last 19 seasons, if you can believe that, 19 seasons. I think that represents like 185 episodes. So we have picked some episodes from the seasons and the themes and the topics that we think might be pertinent during this summer season. And we invite you to revisit them with fresh ears to listen for God's invitations for you right now. Um, if you'd like, you can also re-listen to the whole season. If that episode actually sparks your interest again, just go back and listen to the whole season. And we pray that God might use these to bring a new word to you now. And actually, some of the most important lessons that we learn in life, we don't learn them from hearing things only once. We have to go back over it, and God brings them back to us. And that's how they become solidified in our lives. And now, please enjoy this episode from season 16. Welcome to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ruth Haley Barton, and in this season, we are exploring systems theory and how that relates to our life in leadership. Indeed, how it can transform our lives in leadership. So the title for this season is Transforming Leadership, Managing Anxiety in Our Communities. I'm thrilled to welcome Steve Cuss, a pastor who is also the author of Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. In this season, he and I will discuss his book as a way to unpack major components of systems theory as they relate to our life in leadership. I hope you enjoy this week's conversation. Welcome friends, we are with Steve Cuss talking about managing leadership anxiety, yours and theirs, and looking at that question through the lens of family systems theory. So Steve, let's get started by talking about the fact that sometimes we get stuck. Mm. Sometimes systems get stuck. We as individuals get stuck. How does family systems theory help us with these stuck places? Yeah, it's, I, this is actually one of, out of all of the system series tools, this is one of my all-time favorite because it equips the leader to come into any organization and to notice what's really going on, and then not only to notice, but to actually see the stuck places. So if we take the positive side of it first, Ruth, like every group of people over time form predictable patterns together. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in marriage, they'll use the metaphor like a dance, like my wife and I have a dance. Mm. And, and it's not, of course, it's not all bad. Most of it is fantastic. So like, if Ruth, if you were to ever come to the Cuss House for for dinner, one of the predictable recurring patterns is you would experience a lot of laughter. When cusses get together for dinner, there's a lot of laughter. Well, that's a positive. Now, let's look at the negative. I, I, I don't want to give the impression that system series all, you know, doom. Uh, you also learn to notice good patterns, but a, a negative pattern might be, for example, 
Well, in, in a stereotypical church that's getting older, they realize, oh man, we need to change if we're if we're going to stay vibrant and healthy. Let's bring in a young pastor. So they bring in this young naive pastor. They say, we want you to help us change. The young pastor brings change, and suddenly, out of nowhere, it seems the older people are now trying to stop the very thing they said they wanted. Yeah. Now that's a very predictable recurring pattern. But what happens is the pastor and the the saints, they don't realize they're in a predictable pattern, almost almost a cliche. And for them, it's in real time. They're blaming the pastor. The pastor's blaming the people. System theory gives you the way to get above behaviors and look at them almost like you're in a helicopter looking down on them, except, of course, to mix our metaphor, you're in the helicopter and you're also in the system. So it's, yeah. it's really helping you look on top of yourself and see stuck patterns. So one of the ones I wrote about in my book, and I, I wrote it with my son's permission, he famously came home from basketball practice one day, <laughs> and he's like, Dad, William's a ball hog. He never passes the ball. Well, the second question is the most obvious question. Well, what do you do about it, Andrew? And Andrew, you know, Andrew was 12 at the time. Andrew's like, well, I never passed to William. And when you hear that, okay, William doesn't pass the ball. My solution is I don't pass the ball to William. Every one of your listeners right away, you know, well, that's not going to work. Like withholding the ball from William isn't going to solve the problem. But in Andrew's mind, that's the solution. So system theory is really interested in uh, what attempted solutions am I applying to my problems that are making the problem worse? I think it's solving it and it's making it worse. Some of your listeners, Ruth, will be systems theory nuts. So I'll just warn them that you won't find this in Bowen. This is outside of the stream of Bowen theory. It's a group through the stream of Bateson, uh, Greg Bateson, and his group was called the Mental Research Institute. And so people could Google Mental Research Institute, second order change is the technical name for what we're talking about. But never mind the technical, it's really about um, what stuck patterns are going on, how can I notice them, how can I see where I'm part of the problem? And then how can I help dissolve them? And so that brings in issues of resistance. What happens when you face resistance? What happens when you're the one resisting? It also brings in issues of, well, what about when I'm not the main leader? What about when I'm the one seeing the problem, but the leaders above me are not interested in changing? So it brings up a host of dynamics. I've, as, as always, Ruth, I've got questions for you too, but... Let's see what that provokes in you, and then we'll kind of kick it around from here. Well, I love it. Um, I love the fact that you called the congregation the saints. What's going on between the pastor and the saints? That was a lovely touch, I must say. You're a very kind person. <laughs> well, I don't, <laughs> when like it when, I don't like it when we blame our congregants as if we are not just like them. Like, I, it really bugs me. I, you, you have yeah. picked a scab with me. I don't like it when pastors have an adversarial adversarial relationship with a congregation because i'm a we're all human i'm not a different species than them so it's an intentional well move it was well, yeah it was lovely and it you know it it stood out to me that you stated it that way and sometimes even the way we talk about things can really affect outcomes and how we see yes. things because to call our congregants the saints i mean i it took me to a deep theological place that no yeah. matter how much at odds we are with people that we worship with they are the saints that's what the bible calls them and so we should be you know treating them like the saints so i just yeah. loved it i just felt like in a very light touch you 
you offered us a really big truth. Well, one of the things that struck me here is the ability to get above it, how important it is to be able to, to get above it and that systems theory really gives you a way to see it bigger. Or another way I would maybe talk about it would be to say that, you know, when you play football or soccer or whatever and you watch game films, what you're yes. really doing is you're trying to get back from it to see things you couldn't see while you were on the field going after the ball and deep in the game, right? That's such a great, that's such a helpful metaphor for people that you're watching game film of your life and your leadership. That's right. That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. And you, you're seeing, yeah. you're not even seeing necessarily the individuals, but you're seeing, you know, you're seeing the patterns and how they move yeah. and not, again, not blaming anyone because the system now is working and it's moving, you know, yeah. kind of on its own. So the idea of getting above it, I think, is so good. And then, I, you know, you brought us back to this place of talking about our self-responsibility as well. Um, when we th- see things as being stuck, a lot of times we do want to blame other people, but you're asking a different set of questions. What solutions am I applying that are only making yeah. things worse? Yeah. That if I'm a part of the system, then I'm part of it. Part, some, there's probably some things I'm doing that are making things yeah. worse. And how can I see where I'm a part of the problem? So I, I really love the fact that systems theory continues to put the responsibility back on ourselves and our quality of functioning, our self-awareness, so, our ability to manage anxiety, the quality of our own functioning. Why don't we try this, Ruth? And we're doing this in real time. It may or may not work. I've got two examples where I've been part of the problem that I could share and I could just lead us through. Okay, here's the recurring pattern. Here's what I did. Here was my attempted solution. And then if if one comes to mind in your life, that would be neat. And then maybe we could dissect the solution, like what's actually the solution. Mm -hmm. We could try that. So the first problem I encountered is when I first came to our church, I was insecure. I'm a chronic people pleaser. And what that did is it attracted very kind people because they were attracted to my vulnerability and they were very good to me. And it also attracted bullies. And Mm -hmm. particularly in our part of Colorado, white collar troubleshooters who are paid a lot of money in their company to tell the company what's wrong. Oh boy. Right. So it attracted both because I'm leading vulnerably. I'm insecure. Mm. I'm being very collaborative. It attracted both. Okay. So that meant that I sat down with people who cared tremendously for me and people who pushed me around. Hmm. Let's look at the push me around. So if every system has, you know, healthy traits, then these first people, great. But the people that push me around, What's the problem? The problem is they really think they know how to lead a church and they don't. My attempted solution, so one step you're always looking for is, well, what am I doing to try to solve it that's making it worse? My attempted solution was to explain myself more, meet with them more, give them more insight. And when that didn't work, then I just tried harder. Mm-hmm. So. I'm kind of stepping in and out of my story, but one of the things you're looking for in attempted solutions is anytime your solution is more of the same or try harder, that's a sign you're probably stuck. So what that did is rather than help them move toward me, it just gave them more insight to weaponize against me. The more I met with them, the more criticism they had for me because they were spending more time with me that the fundamental problem was that they thought they knew how to run a church. That's the fundamental problem. And you were showing your vulnerability, which seemed to invite them to tell you how to do it better. 
and I couldn't tell the difference between the bullies and the people that cared mm-hmm. for me. They all felt the same to me at, at first because I was anxious. I was blind to what was going on. So that would be kind of three steps in. And then what happens is once you sober up and come to your senses and you watch your game film and you, what happened to me, Ruth, is, is I was stood up for a 5 a.m. meeting with one of these guys. Mm. And and it's like when you're at 5 a.m. in a greasy spoon diner because that's the only time he'll meet yeah. and he forgets mm-hmm. to show up, you come to the end of your senses. You're like the <laughs> prodigal son. And so I'm like, okay, Lord, enough, enough. What's going on? Well, now you're trying to say, okay, it's not just, it's what am I doing that's contributing? Because I'm blaming them. I'm saying in my head, why are they so mad? Why don't they understand? But I get to watch the game film. Mm-hmm. Ruth, I'm going to forever use that. I love that. I've never mm-hmm. heard that. It's such a good one. And I realize, oh, what I'm doing is I'm feeding the problem by meeting with them. Mm-hmm, it's almost mm-hmm. like they've got a fire and I keep stoking the fire. So I have to starve it. My more of the same and try harder is, is stoking the fire. And then once you've figured out your complicity in the problem, then you have to say, well, who's motivated to change? Yeah. And in this case, it's only me. They were not motivated. Now, what I love about system theory is how you can change the behavior of others when they don't want to change. It's not manipulative, yeah. but if I stop showing up, they have to adjust because I've broken that's the right. pattern. So that's what we did. I remember with one of my critics uh, sitting down with him, and, and at some point he laid out all these issues, and he just, well, what do you have to say for yourself? Like I'm a little boy, you know? And I just calmly said, nothing. I have nothing to say. I'm, I, you have lost the right to my insight. I've, <laughs> I've given you my insight and you've wielded against me. You've gossiped about me behind my back. So I have, I'm not here to explain myself. I'm here to listen to what you have to say and that's it. And it drove this poor guy crazy. And that gets to the resistance and sabotage that happens anytime someone changes. In the last episode, we talked about the Algeria and the fish tank and stuff. So that would be one pattern of, okay, the problem is I'm leading vulnerably, which shouldn't be a problem. It's attracting bullies. My attempted solution is trying to win them over with meetings and then recognizing what's my complicity. Okay, I'm feeding the fire. And then, okay, who's motivated to change? Just me. So I'll change myself and that might force change. And here's the thing, Ruth. Most of those people are still around the church, not all of them. Mm. There's only a handful. There's only four or five of them, and they haven't changed. They still are criti- critical of everything. So mm. it's not but they still that, want to be there. Yep, there's a whole, you know, people have a complex set of reasons why they're at any given church. But I'm no longer anxious about them. That's the change. So it's not that Disneyland and they become lovely and we're now best friends. That's not true. What's true is... Um, I'm no longer wrapped up in their opinion. And that's what naming the dynamic uh, did for me. And I've got another one I can share, but let me just pause it. And I don't know if anything comes to mind for you, Ruth. This is definitely a more technical tool, but it's so powerful. So do you have anything where you want to share about, okay, here's the situation I was in. Here's what I think I was doing to keep the problem going, that kind of thing. Well, I, you know, I was just thinking about when someone disagrees um, with something that you've that I've taught. You know, either they thought that, you know, I got political, or that I was, 
making light of something that should have been shouldn't have been making light of or something like that and what I've noticed is that when I approach a conversation like that thinking that I'm going to prove myself to be okay you know that I mm. and make whatever I did to be okay in their eyes that that never works you know that trying to prove yourself on that sort of heady intellectual level like where you argue something at that yeah. level it doesn't matter how much of that you throw at how someone feels about something that you've said but to be present with them to what's happening underneath for them you might not have solved the thing up here you know you might not have solved the theological issue or the fact that they thought you got political or whatever but you've established a, a connection with them that somehow changes the whole dynamic uh, of the yeah. relationship between the two of you so to be more conscious and aware of what am I coming to this to try to do you know then I'm not participating. I think what they expect is that I'm going to participate by arguing with them theologically or yeah, whatever. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. But I make a decision going in, no, I'm not going to do that because I don't believe that's going to even get any results anyway. I'm going to go in and just be present to what their real concern is, just be be emotionally available, um, have them have a sense that I am with them, and things can shift and change if I can, you know, be aware of myself enough not to do that other thing. You know, not to try yeah. to solve something at that other level when that's not really what nothing ever gets solved on that level anyway. Um, it's actually a really pow powerful thing that you're explaining here. In in, in systems language, we we kind of talk about medicine and how a doctor will often um, look at the presenting problem, but they're actually trying to find the underlying cause. Mm -hmm. And so the patient comes in saying, "Here's the problem," but the doctor saying, "Well, it's actually this other thing." That's what you're describing, Ruth. Is somebody saying, Ruth, the problem is you made this political statement. That's the problem. And you're saying, well, I think the underlying cause is this thing. What's yes, interesting it, about it that It hit a tool, painful place in you. Can we talk about that? You know, yeah. versus arguing it out on that intellectual level. Um, yeah, let me, yeah, that's right. The, the attempted solution is I'm hearing what you're saying through the lens of second order changes. You're, you're avoiding the attempted solution of of you saying, okay, let me give you more insight. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's the more of the same thing I'm hearing. And then when you keep arguing with me, let me then try harder to convince you. And now you're in a predictable recurring pattern, which we see play out on Twitter every day. What, what we just described describes yes. most social media interactions. Yeah. And you talk about the fact that many leaders try to argue things out the level of content mm which I think is so insightful versus what's really going on process. What, what's going on in this relationship that actually yeah. really needs to be dealt with versus the content of what I said. Cause I think a lot of times leaders do react and interact with the content of something versus being able to see what's happening in terms of process or context. Can yeah. you speak to that a little bit more? How, how that is such an important function of leadership is being able to see the context and the process versus yes. just the content. I, I think it's actually, I think without this tool, we're all driving in second gear. Yeah. We could drive in overdrive in fifth gear. It's really that powerful because we're, we're listening, we're paying attention to content, what people are saying. But we've been saying this whole series that, that system series studies emotional context. That's what we all react to. So I'm not so much listening to what you're saying. I'm reacting to like facial features and the story I'm telling myself. Like there's all of this emotional context going on. 
systems theory just helps us get it all out into the open and get it from the subconscious to conscious. And, and that's really the power tools. The simplest thing your leaders can do is they can think of a staff meeting and they can say, okay, what are the recurring patterns? And here would be, here would be three simple questions. Number one, who is always the first one to speak up? It's almost always the same person. Uh, who never speaks unless they're spoken to? It's almost always the same person. And then I think the fun question is who has their own secret meeting after the meeting? Mm -hmm. Now, these are, these are examples of anxiety in a system that has now generated anxious behavior. And if the leader notices that and, and dissolves those patterns, so much health shows up to where the quiet person gets comfortable speaking. I, I, I was doing some coaching uh, where one of the staff members, English was not his first language, and he was an associate pastor. And there were three pastors in the room. And I just noticed that this guy, I'll call him David, he never spoke up. And I was the only one who called on him to speak. So his own team didn't seem to care that he never spoke up. I was the consultant and I was like, David, what do you, we've not heard from you. What do you think? And when David would speak, this incredible gold wisdom came out of his mouth. He had really a very thoughtful, deliberative guy. So I thought, okay, well, I'm going to try this very thing, Ruth, that we're talking about right now. I'm going to name the dynamic. And I said to the group, I'm curious, why is it that I'm the only one asking David to speak? Why are the rest of you letting, letting him get away with being silent all the time? What's going on? And they were from England, and they said, well, we're English. We don't talk about these things. We just, but I said, but you've noticed it. Right? Oh, yeah, we've all noticed it. David, would you mind, would you be willing to tell us? And David said, well, English isn't my first language. The last church has that. They made fun of me for the way I spoke. And it was very shameful for me. And then the second thing, he, he says, guys, I'm translating, and I can't keep up. You guys, by the time I'm ready to share, you're on to the next thing. And that's why I'm quiet. And so I said to the, the lead guys, I did you know this? No, I had no idea. Well, this is the power of curiosity. Curiosity can get you so far. And then it's a wonderful ending of the story. Basically, this guy became a motor mouth after that and, hmm. and, and really benefited the team because they adjusted the anxiety to where he had an even playing field. They did things like letting him interrupt any time he wanted. It got quite funny. Making sure that a decision would be the next meeting so he'd have time to deliberate. The, this would be an example of, of context rather than content and bringing mm -hmm. subconscious to the, to the named uh, surface, yeah. Well, and what's so interesting about that story is that there are many other meanings that could have been put on his silence and probably were put on his silence. But until right. you you allowed him to speak about what it actually was, people could have been putting lots of meanings on why he was so quiet, none of which were the That's ones right. he actually named. You know? That's right, yeah. And, of course, it's the job of the systems leader to do these confrontive things very gently. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously this is tender ground, so you can't yeah. just say, you never speak, you know, you have to usher somebody in. But yeah, or you guys most, are so rude that you, you know, just bulldoze over him all the time. Right, yeah, most, most people will respond um, to context. If you, if you can raise context in a gentle, inviting, curious way, most people will be happy to play because they've all noticed it. You're just the one making everyone talk about it. Yeah.
One of the ways that I've done something like that is when I'm facilitating a group of people on a spiritual retreat and we come back from solitude and do some debriefing. And when I'll first ask the question, you know, so what happened for you in solitude? How did you choose to be with God? How did, how was God with you? And there's complete silence for a long, for a while. Mm. Then I'll ask the question, well, so what does your silence mean? Mm. And that question always brings responses. And, and, and I'm often surprised too. And if I didn't ask the question, if I assumed I knew what the silence meant versus asking them what their silence meant, it would yeah. be a much more impoverished conversation. And I always learn things when I ask that question. So, you know, that's fine that you don't want to say anything, but what does your silence mean, you know? Yeah. And yeah. There's, always, there's always real answers to that that people are willing to offer. Um, and that's definitely process, not content, you know? I'll share my second example because I like I like the stories where I'm certainly not the hero. I'm not the guy. And and I I was a young pastor and my chair of the elders gave me this gift. His name's Jeff. And he noticed this pattern in me that I would show up to an elders meeting and because I'm a fairly dominant personality and big guy, I, I'm afraid of power. And so I would be overly collaborative. That's very well meaning of me. But what would happen is I would, I would throw an idea to the elders that they had never thought about before, and I've put about 300 hours into thinking about it. And then I would expect out of the elders in real time their insight. But they, these poor people have never thought about it, so they're trying to help me by giving me their insight, and I'm then punishing them because their insight is not very good. <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say it, but this was, this was about 10 years ago where I then am offended or defensive when they try to help me by giving an idea that's not going to work. So Jeff, who I don't believe is trained in systems theory, pulls me aside as the chair of the elders. He's my boss and very kindly says, Steve, here's what's going on. And he named that dynamic that I just mm. named to you. To mm -hmm. you. And he said, look, I see what's happening. What you want is to collaborate. You don't want to be a domineering leader, but what you're doing is you're setting us up to fail. So, mm -hmm. Figure it. Don't worry about being a power monger. If you're a, we'll, we will tell you if you're trying to be too powerful. But just spend some time the week or two before the elders meeting and figure out the one or two things that you would really like us to actually collaborate on. Because these things, you don't need our opinion. You know what to do. Just go do it. But mm -hmm. find one or two things and then send us the information two weeks ahead so we have time. And I think it'll be better. And Because Jeff said, because you're really combative. Like when we are trying to help you, you fight us and it's not mm -hmm. good. So there's an example of second order change, somebody mm -hmm. coming to me. I'm the systems guy in the room. So again, it's not that I'm never stuck. It's, it's that Jeff came to me and as soon as he said it, I was like, yeah, that's right. That is what's going on. And my attempted solution was making it worse. And then Jeff brought a, a change. So one power tool when you're stuck with somebody is to ask them, what is it you want? Which is also a very Jesus question. What is it you want me to do for you? And what Jeff did is he looked through my behavior to what he believed I wanted. And that honored me. It made me less threatened when he confronted me because this kind of work is very confrontive. But by him saying, I think what you're wanting is this. I'm like, okay, you see me. Uh, then I was able to hear from him, well, here's, here's what it's doing. But I was walking away from those elders meetings like these crazy elders, don't they know mm -hmm. how to think blaming instead of taking responsibility? So it's a really powerful tool. 
and and it can stop it can literally stop burnout in its tracks mm-hmm. because you you can see these patterns instead of being wrapped up in them um and actually have the power to do something about them you know steve what strikes me about your story with that with the elder jeff is that what he did was to do exactly what we've talked about already and that was to name the process versus any content like he didn't even talk about the content of whatever it were, was that you guys were, you and your elders were talking about. He right. described the process as he saw it. And that's what got you unstuck. And I think that's so fascinating and wonderful, but I think many of us are not trained to do that. I think we're more yeah. trained to engage the content and think, man, if we can just keep fighting at the level of the content of this conversation, we'll get somewhere. And we don't because it's the process yeah. that's broken. You know, it's such a, it's such an important reminder mm-hmm. that, Every one of us can get off the treadmill and observe, and sometimes yes. we do need others' help. And I think it's also really important to note that second-order change, this thing we're talking about, it doesn't solve problems. It mm-hmm. solves stuck problems. Yes. It, it, it doesn't just solve a problem. Most of us resolve our own problems, but the recurring problems, the predictable behaviors. You know, Ruth, I happen to know about you. Before you were doing Transforming Center, you were on staff at a very large church, a very well-known church, but you were not the primary leader of that organization. So mm-hmm. one of the challenges with second order change is what do you do when you see the anxiety around you, but you're not necessarily in a position to change the system? Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm wondering if you'd be willing to take us back to when you were on staff there. What did you feel? What did you notice? What were maybe some recurring patterns that you noticed? And then I, I wonder if we could kind of go through the process mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. Well, you know, in that in that environment, you know, we've talked about the body and the awareness that one can have of what's going on. And, you know, I remember eventually being able to feel the fear and the power, power dynamics just by walking into the place. And there was, you know, sometimes a feeling of even dread about crossing the threshold because I could feel almost a vibration of fear and the power dynamics that were at play. But, you know, I too am a type A I can be an aggressive leader and, you know, going at things head on. And, you know, there came a point where I had to acknowledge that coming at things head on wasn't going to work and that the kinds of things I would have liked to have seen happen there were not going to happen. And yet I couldn't also envision anything different for myself either. You know, the church is the only world I've ever known. And I had just been convinced that my calling was going to be to bring what I bring there. And so stepping out or stepping aside felt like a a tremendous death and dying. But, you know, eventually I realized that what I was hoping to see wasn't going to take place there and that I and others were suffering in that environment. And so I did step aside and it was, it was hard to, to, to step aside versus continuing the pattern of, you know, working at things head on. So I think the counterintuitive thing there, the second order change, if you will, was the decision to do something very different and to step aside versus continuing to fight it out in the way I was fighting it out, trying to convince people of stuff. And I think, too, you know, another part of my personality is that I feel like if, you know, if you're perfect enough, if you're special enough, if you work hard enough, I have a very good work work ethic, that that if you are if you are good and perfect and right, if you're good enough, you can make these things happen. And that was a hard thing to say, no, I don't think I can. I don't think that's going to be what's going to do it here and step aside. So very hard to, to take a new 
to choose a new way of being and behaving. But it changed my life, you know, all for the good and in a very good way. And the Transforming Center wouldn't even exist. And we've been in existence 20 years now. We, the Transforming Center wouldn't have existed if I had continued to beat my head against the wall in all my normal ways, believing yeah, all so, my false beliefs that I could work hard enough and be good enough and all of that to make something happen that wasn't happening. It, there's two aspects of Second Order Change that have been flagged in your story. One of them is uh, one of the most provocative solutions is called um, prescribe the problem. Whatever the problem is, you then do that thing. And what you said, Ruth, a number of times is you said it felt like a death. It was like a dying. It's mm-hmm. leaving this thing was a death. And that if that's the problem, then the solution is go ahead and die. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's what you actually did. Mm-hmm. And then what I love about that is that, well, after death, in the Christian gospel, after death is always resurrection, mm-hmm. always new life, all things made new, which, of course, is also your testimony. So that's something just for our listeners. Um, prescribing the problem isn't always the way to go, and it's tricky, but that screamed out at me, Ruth, when you looked toward resigning as like a death, and that's exactly what it was, thanks be to God. That's how I would mm-hmm. say it. Yeah. But I'd like to get your take on motivated change agents. That's the other thing you look for in second-order change. You look around the room and you say, well, who's motivated and who's not? Mm-hmm. And quite commonly, when you're not at the top of the org chart, like you weren't at this place, mm-hmm. then the people at the top of the org chart are not motivated because they're benefiting from the anxiety. Mm. A- and so it's the people down the org chart that are carrying the anxiety. It's the people at the top of the org chart that are generating the anxiety. But because they're not carrying it, they're either oblivious or they're sometimes even benefiting it from it. I, I, I do wonder what you would say to somebody in like a mid-level role like that where you can't control who's going, what's going on above you. What's your advice to those people when they see these patterns and they're not sure what to do and they're, they're carrying a lot of anxiety? You said that it was a visceral reaction across the threshold into that building. That's, I mean, you're talking almost trauma language at that point. Mm-hmm. What, how do you guide people in those situations? Well, I think it's it's probably a, an important part of the process to try everything you know to try so that you know you have tried everything you know to try. Because okay. there's certainly no second guessing. Once you've tried everything you know to try, it becomes very clear. So I don't, I don't ever begrudge people the part of the process where you try what you know to try so that you don't, you're not always thinking back, well, if I'd just done this or if I'd just done that, then I might have been able to make a difference. Go ahead and, you know, give it your best shot. Give it, you know, all you've got. Um, but then when you when you really do see that it's harming yourself and your ability to, to be the soul in God's presence that you know yourself to be or to say yes to God's call in your life, then letting die what needs to die is the best the best thing that we can do. And most of us need support to do that. I had really yeah. good support. I had a good spiritual director. And I remember one time, and see, this is again where the spiritual and the psychological can kind of collide together in in the best possible way. During that time when I was discerning what to do, and it was becoming clear to me that probably stepping away and stepping aside was going to be the only, you know, solution for me. Um, And we were talking about that openly in spiritual direction. And I was 
probably right there at that moment of getting ready to do the thing I knew I needed to do. But I said, well, what about my resume? <laughs> right. And this wonderful right. spiritual woman said, I am not here to help you with your resume. <laughs> I am here to help you listen to God and to do what God is asking you to do. That's right. <laughs> and I have, right. I have, I've just loved her for that. You know, my job is not to help you with your resume. My job is to help you hear what God is saying to you and to support you in doing it. That is the role of a good spiritual director. A spiritual director is not a life coach or any kind of coach. A spiritual director is is one who is there to help us see what God's saying and doing in our lives. And, you know, so um, that was, again, that just shows you my mindset, though, Mm. you know. Yeah. Um, And and a key piece of second order change is the freedom to test your assumptions. And you do normally need help with that. Mm-hmm. And so that's what, she, that's the gift she gave you is, is, and, and a lot of our assumptions, I think too, Ruth, uh, are, are not the kind of assumptions we would like to have. So like some of what I heard in you, there was ambition, for example. Mm-hmm. And so having the freedom in a non-judgmental place to be able to get your assumptions out into the open and that way you can really put them before the Lord. I think that's gold. So you know, I know second order change, it's, it's a challenging thing, but just to summarize. Yeah, please define it one more time. Yes, define yeah. it and summarize. Yep. Uh, second order change is the, the skill to dissolve a stuck recurring pattern of behavior in you or between you and other people, which is also therefore a whole system, a whole system of people. So... What you're doing is you're noticing any time that your solution to a problem is try harder or more of the same. And one of the things you said, Ruth, is your work ethic. Like I just, I know I can. If I work hard enough, this. you know. <laughs> yeah, which is also has assumptions attached. Yeah. And then once you've gotten clear on that, you have to grapple with your complicity. You're like, well, one of the reasons we're tr- they're treating me so badly is I let them. For example, that would be mm-hmm. one simple example. Yeah. The reason these people are bullying me around is I allow it. That's okay, right. well, mm-hmm. I can't stop them bullying, but I can stop. I will no longer allow it. I remember mm-hmm. I was five years into ministry, into lead pastoring, and I changed my posture. I changed yeah. my physicality, to, and and I was I was sending a message saying, "You can tell me, you can tell me how to do my job," and I started sending the message saying, "I don't want to hear your dumb idea." It was mm-hmm. quite a switch. So once you figure out your complicity, then you're looking for motivated change agents. And the more motivated people, the faster change can happen. So this young pastor in the saints, when he, the young pastor finds resistance in the saints, he tends to forget that these are the people that sacrifice to get the church to this place, that, that what they're doing is they're afraid that he's going to take their church from them. And if he opens up his Bible and blames God and says, you guys should have faith, you should love the lost, should, 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 He's going to build resistance in them. But if he names their fears and invites them to name their fears, he can dissolve their resistance and he can recruit them as motivated change agents. And then last episode's tool of differentiation is usually that the final tool in second order change. And that's what you did, Ruth. You, you faced the abyss. You said, this feels like death. And then you said, okay, I'm going to die. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm about. Take my stand and off you went. Oftentimes when that happens, we're surprised at how little crying we leave behind, mm-hmm. how little we're actually missed. Yeah. Oh, we we sure. do have uh, an overinflated sense of our own importance, I think. So, yeah, that's kind of second order change in a nutshell. I know it's, a, it's definitely a tough one, but um, 
yeah, hopefully that helps folks to get there. Yeah, well, and it does really point back to this issue of differentiation that second order change is actually working on the person that you can change, and that is yourself. Right. <laughs> right. And taking that radical, it's, I actually think it's quite radical to, it's very radical. To, yeah. to take responsibility for oneself, even when you can't, you know, we're so used to wanting to change everything around us, but if the only thing we can change is ourself, that is a radical level of self responsibility. And that's when the real change happens, at least in our own lives, right? That's exactly it. And then it. God can lead us on and lead us out. Thanks be to God. Do you have any suggestions for how we can practice that in the next week? How can we just practice this in some small ways? Right. This one's a deeper power tool. I, when I teach it, I say it's a chainsaw. So with a chainsaw, you can do a lot of good and a lot of damage. Mm-hmm. So the way you practice is you try to notice stuck recurring patterns, first of all, in others where you're not involved because it's safer. And then the next step is, okay, well, what's a stuck recurring pattern where I'm part of the problem? And really, that's the whole practice for now. You don't want to run all these steps. It's usually several weeks and a lot of help to go through all of the steps. But if you can notice the patterns, and then, and again, you can practice on your TV screens. So uh, one of my favorite TV shows is Ted Lasso. Oh, And there's um, a (laughs) lot of great second order change going on in Ted Lasso because Ted is extremely well differentiated. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, But once you've done that, you've had some fun. Okay, now it's time where the rubber hits the road. Okay, Lord, show me the patterns where I'm the one that's keeping this whole thing alive. Um, And and really what you want to stop at this week is, well, where am I complicit? What am I doing? That I I would stop there, and then I would get help for the rest of the steps, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would like to locate that in the biblical practice of self-examination. You know, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any, and I like to substitute some words there rather than the word wicked. See if there be any unhealthy or unproductive or ineffective ways in me, stuck ways in me, and lead me in the life-giving way. Lead me in a life-giving path. So not just to make this morbid introspection, but to actually allow God to be the one to put his finger on or reveal whatever it is that God would choose to reveal this week um, and where I'm part of the problem. Let's let this be a God-guided practice this week and see what God has to surface for our lives. Thanks be to God that there is hope if we can let God show us these things. Thank you, Steve. Thanks so much for listening today, friends. I hope that you are already finding yourself to be encouraged during these challenging days that God has resources for us. God has ways of leading us forward if we can just stay open. I also want to mention that here in the Transforming Center, we have two identical dates in the fall for an event that we call the Pursuing God's Will Together Retreat. And this retreat is all about helping leadership groups discern and do the will of God together. It's about helping them to move beyond just strategic thinking and planning to a place where we listen for the voice of God in our own lives and in our lives as leadership groups so that we can do God's will together as leaders. And so if this is a desire that's on your heart, if you have questions about how God is leading you forward as a community, then this two and a half day retreat will give your leadership group a chance to come away, to listen to God and to each other, and to discern God's way forward for you. You can find information about this in our show notes or by going to our website. Oh.